For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Marvelous. Marvelous helps you build and grow your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. If you're looking for a simple, beautiful, custom branded platform to build and grow your online business, you can learn more at heymarvelous.com. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. Last month, we hosted Thrive Online, our annual virtual conference, and there was one session that was so good, we knew we had to share it with our podcast audience. The session was our panel conversation with some powerhouse feminist thinkers and teachers and was called Women, Money, and Power. The panel was made up of Kelly Deals, feminist marketing teacher, Femily, professional feminist, Claire Wasserman, founder and author of Ladies Get Paid, and Naomi Clark, feminist financial coach. And of course, Jenny and myself. This conversation is strong, fast, powerful, motivating, eye-opening, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone. This is the last session of Thrive Online. Thank you all for being here. And for those of you that have been here all day, thank you for sticking it out. The panel that we have in front of us is the exact panel that we had last year on the Women, Money, and Power panel. And we were just talking and it was something happened last year. And I don't know that we can put any words to it, but it was just this magical mixture of personalities and opinions. And it just got so fiery and interesting. And the chat just lit up and we just we had so much positive feedback from the attendees that we knew we had to repeat it. So that's what we've got before you, our fireside chat, women, money, and power. So before we get into it, just a few notes. This is the last session of the day. We have a bonus session tomorrow called Pricing in the Patriarchy. If any of you on the panel want to come, we'll hook you up. So that is for people who are applying to the Inner Circle. You'll get your invite with an application. Go to thriveonlineconference.com to make that happen. And the deadline is in three hours from now. Okay. So again, Thrive Online 2021 is the hashtag we're using on social. The replays are going to be there for you until Tuesday. So if you were not able to attend or had to leave early, they're all up there on the Marvelous site. We've got, again, the chat box and the Q&A. Feel free to 
cheer everyone on in the chat or just talk amongst yourself or, you know, ask questions, actually ask questions in the Q&A. So leave the chat for the chat, Q&A is for the questions. I'm going to keep my eye on everything. We have a few questions sort of prepared for the panel, but we're just going to let loose here in a few minutes. So I want to first do some quick introductions. I know these guys are like, let's not do introductions. Let's just go. I just want to talk. So I'm going to do quick introductions though. So I'm going to Altai, give us a little wave. Amina is a holistic leadership coach who combines brand building and marketing with training in nutrition, fitness, and mindfulness to help emerging entrepreneurs build businesses the healthy way. Kelly Deals is a feminist educator, writer, and coach. She specializes in feminist marketing for culture makers. Claire Wasserman is an educator, author, and founder of Ladies Get Paid, a platform, global community, and book, you can see it behind her, that teaches women to level up professionally and financially. Naomi Clark is a feminist financial consultant. I love that and coach. She helps women get more money, more power, and dismantle the oppressive systems getting in their way. She would have loved this morning's session. She's also the host of the Outspoken Girlfriend podcast. And Femily from Silicon Valley's Watermark Conference for Women to South by Southwest, Femily frequently speaks to companies, conferences, and women's events. In 2018, Femily founded the American Association of Corporate Gender Strategists, to address a growing demand for rigor in the field. So having said all that, I would just say follow each of these people on Instagram. Their content is fantastic. And we have had all of them on our podcast. So if you want to go deeper into their stories and some conversation with us, you can just look it up on the And She Spoke podcast. Okay. So we're going to just start this out with completing the sentence. I'm going to check the chat here make sure we're good. Okay. So Let's just start with money is what? What does money mean to you? What does it represent to you? What does it mean? Naomi, you can go first. You know what? This may sound very ambiguous, but money is what you make it. Mm. Money is what you decided to mean because money doesn't spend itself. Money doesn't invest itself. It doesn't earn itself. It doesn't save itself. So the decision that you're making in terms of how you're going to use your money as a resource to exchange, to get something in exchange for that. It's whatever you decided to be and whatever season of life that you're in. I love it. It's important because we live in a society where you need it, but it's what you decide. That's where I come from. Kelly Deals? I'd say it's a form of power. And like Naomi said, it's what you make of that form of power. And one of the things I want us to note is we often shy away from power because our first experience with power is abusive or coercive. And so sometimes that's one of the reasons we shy away from money too. We associate money with abuses of power or with danger. And I just want us to know that it can be a life-giving force, that it can be stewarded brilliantly, and that we can use it to create equity and to create flourishing. It doesn't always have to be used against us. <laughs> Family. <laughs> I could see your wheels okay. turning. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> exactly what you both said. Like money is power and freedom if done right. Like as a queer person, I'm always thinking about how I want to do queer liberation with my money, you know, queer equity, et cetera, and not sort of rainbow capitalism. And yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Amina. I love everything that's been said. Yes, money is what we make it. What I make it is freedom and choice. And for me, like everyone's saying, money isn't about the money. It's what we get to do with it. It's the movements we can contribute to. It's what we can make happen. It's the legacy, all the good stuff. Claire? Man, it kind of sucks to go last. I know, I'm sorry. I just thinking like the person that's going to go last is going to be like, uh, it's ditto. Has been said, yes. Great segue from Amina because I was going to say freedom. You know, at Ladies Get Paid, we talk about salary negotiation a lot as a way 
that we can close at least our own individual pay gaps, if not the structural systemic, right? And I always say that negotiating in some sense is a privilege because it's really only those who are able and willing to walk away that are the strongest negotiators. How do you do that? You've got savings, okay? You've got multiple revenue streams. You've got another job offer, right? And it it really is about money, right? And that's what gives you freedom and choices. So Amina, you said it, but that's my... (laughs) That's my, you know, amendment to the end of this. (laughs) And Jenny, do you want to weigh in on here too? Yeah, I would say I'm right in Kelly's space with this. Like to me, money is power. And I would say money and tech are the two largest sources of power that we have in our culture right now, which is why that's all I ever want to talk about for those two things. Awesome. Okay. And I just, as you guys were talking, I think what was so great last year was that it wasn't just like, Family, Jenny, like just jump in. Let's go from here on. Just like jump in now that we've got that big one out of the way because you guys were just all, you know, leaping over each other to get in there. So let's just open it up. So let's start with this. When was the last time you had a barrier about what you could earn and how did you get past it? Who wants to go first? Okay. Oh, I love it. See, this is what I want. This is exactly what I wanted. Naomi, then Claire. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be a, you know, a panelist that completely does not answer the question because, okay. you know, we're talking about jumping in and we're talking about money. We're talking about power. And one of the things that I talk about in my work is that there is no talking about money and power without talking about oppression, oppression at the systemic level, oppression at the personal level. You know, sometimes we think of oppression and we make it so big and it seems so distant and depending on your individual characteristics, visible and invisible, you may think that you're not affected. Mm -hmm. And as a Black American woman, you know, I can't talk about money and power without talking about being a citizen of the United States where I'm living on land that was stolen, calling in from the original home and land of the Muscogee Creek Nation, a country that was built not just on stolen land, but the stolen life force of enslaved Africans where they were considered assets. Human beings were considered assets on a balance sheet. And so when we think about the United States and how quickly this country was able to consolidate power and become a superpower in the world, there is no talking about what's happening today with money and power without acknowledging the culture that we're living within. And so as, again, as a Black woman, like, These are the things that I think are very, very important for those of us who have multiple identities that society tries to marginalize and words matter. So you will hear me very rarely say minorities because I'm not fucking minor. No one is. Hmm. You will rarely hear me say marginalized people. We are not marginalized. It's the dominant culture that seeks to marginalize certain people. And so let's put the ownership on the people who are doing the oppressing and not try to categorize people by the dominant culture that's seeking to steal from them. And so I just want to jump in and talk that piece because it's how I start my podcast episodes. It's something that I know many of us on this panel talk about as well. And I just want to make sure that when we're talking about money and power, we cannot ignore that some shit has nothing to do with you personally and has everything to do with the society that we're living within. And when we talk about oppression, you know, you could talk about all the isms, racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, all of that. But then also that personal oppression, whenever you feel stifled, whenever someone's trying to gaslight you, whenever you feel like you can't ask a question, 
whenever you are put into the corner, whether it's in a corporate setting, whether it's in a marriage, you know, these are personal oppressions that are keeping you from showing up as your authentic self. And so I know you had a question. And no, that's okay. No, I think that's perfect to kind of like frame it and go forward from there. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi. That is the system working as it was designed to work, right? That's not an accident. That's not a failure. That is by design. And what I want to note is none of the people in this room on this panel are supposed to have anything Mm -hmm. by design. And so if we play along by those rules, that's what's going to happen. And that was like a big epiphany that I had when in 2015, I'd had a baby and I was reading all these books about productivity because I was trying to write a book and couldn't figure out why, even though I was on maternity leave, which in Canada is paid, I could not get anything accomplished and I couldn't write a book. So I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get anything done. And so I was frantically time tracking and reading all these productivity books, literally while I was breastfeeding by the blue light of the phone and time tracking, trying to figure out all these advice. And at one point there was advice by this time guru. No, I'm not going to say guru. That's a totally the wrong kind of word to use. This time expert and he said, you know, productive people get up at 4.30 in the morning and that's what you need to do to... And I was literally like, it's 4.30 in the morning. What have you got for me now? Like, I haven't even gone to bed yet, right? And all that to say is I had this epiphany, which was I had been trying to play by the rules and I was getting nowhere. And yeah. if you're trying to play by the rules, we will get nowhere because the system is not designed for us, which is why we have to then get super creative about money give ourselves permission because we have been conditioned not to be allowed to go after power or go after money. And at the same time, I really want to steer us away from the idea that we're trying to build personal empires. Empire is a colonial term. It's a colonial practice. What we are trying to do is personally build power and share it, right? Build power and share it. And often the best way to build power is together. Now, Naomi and I know each other really well right? And we are building power together. And we are sharing what we know. She has expertises that I don't have. I have expertises that she doesn't have, right? And we are helping each other rise. So that is what we actually have to do. We have to stop thinking about how to get more out of the people who we're working with and start figuring out how to circulate money as currency. And even if we think about the word currency, currency is electricity It's or it's something in flow. And that is what's meant to happen with money is it's meant to be in flow, right? It's not to be meant to be hoarded up and bought islands with. And like, that's the problem of advanced capitalism. We need to circulate it in our ecosystems, in our feminist ecosystems, so that we all flourish. Yes, yes, yes. Claire, I know you wanted to jump in there. I'm taking notes. It's <laughs> right now. I, I mean, incredible. I, you know, when you asked about in barriers or when was the sort of last time, I mean, it's, it's really sort of every day, whether it's, should I spend this, right? Like guilt of, should I get this coffee? Cause we've all been told stop buying coffee, right? Like the small moments. And even if you're not fully feeling it, there's always, or can be at least for me, this like twinge in the back of my head, right? Some kind of like self-judgment on how I'm spending my money. I would say a really big 
thing that I have dealt with or grappled with and how I sort of moved past it or learned to kind of deal with it better is whenever we negotiate with brands for partnerships, this is like a big way how ladies get paid or how ladies get paid gets paid. So we're negotiating with brands and, and kind of going back to like the strongest negotiators, the ones who are able and willing to walk away. Well, we also, we need this. We do need this, but we also recognize our value. Every time I say a big number and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm saying this big number. I do two things. Uh, or I guess one thing, but I think about it in two ways. I think back to a previous time when I negotiated what I thought was a really big amount. And it was, it was at the time. And now I look back at that number, I think, oh, how cute. That's It's my cute number. How sweet. I would never charge that now. That being said, I do bring more value now than I did at the time. So it was sort of commensurate. So I always want to like contextualize this stuff. But yeah, I had a lot of fear over that number. I no longer look at that number as really big. Then the other thing I do is I project into the future, looking at myself now, thinking this number will also be cute. And it helps me, you know, just put things in perspective. But again, I I do, you know, I always, always want to just caveat and acknowledge that a conversation like this can be one of privilege because we really can't stand our ground with this if you are desperately trying to make ends meet. But you know, one way is to look in the past and the future and recognize, you know what, I'm okay today. Yeah. Jenny, I'm just wondering, do you want to just share your the 88% thing that we continually are talking about all day? I think it'd be helpful in the context of this panel and just we can talk about why, you know, I'd, I'd love their opinions on why it's only 88%. Yeah, we just went over some statistics this morning in one of our conversations about, you know, sort of the earning capacity of women-founded businesses and just the fact that 88% of them don't break that six-figure mark and how for roughly two-thirds of businesses in the United States that are founded by women, that is their primary source of income or their primary source of sustenance. So we tend to put female-founded companies into this category of being like side money or extra when in fact those are actually the companies that are paying the bills and supporting families. So that's just setting the stage for that. But based on what you just said, Claire, I just can't help but want to bring up something else that's that came up in the conversation with Sadie Nardini earlier today. And Sandy and I had this conversation with her before we went live, so everyone didn't hear it. But you know, part of what we do, we're squarely within the creator economy. Like we run a tech company within the creator economy, which is a buzzword, but it's also like this like super growing, like massively funded entity in our culture. And in my research, as I have conversations with venture capitalists all the time, what's come up for me is that um, the sort of gender disparity and who identifies or who is identified as a creator versus an influencer. So I want to throw that out too, because I think that's another thing that comes up maybe, Claire, based on what you just shared when you're negotiating with brands, that what is happening in this like massively growing giant economy, which we're all a part of, is that women are seen as influencers, and that's like a separate category, and men are seen as creators. And I just, I want to hear like, how is that playing for each of you? Is that something that you've been hearing or thinking about? Or, you know, how does that land with you? Ooh, I never thought about it that way. I have a weird relationship with the word influencer. Listen, I think when I think of influencer, I think of somebody who has like a huge Instagram following who, you know, it's perfectly presented, right? Everything's like well-designed, right? And so whenever somebody says, I'm an influencer, I'm like, who? Because I have none of those things. Well, I have followers, but you know, they're not in the six figure followers. And then I realized actually, does my audience trust me? And if they trust me, okay, then that, I guess, means I have some influence. So I I just found it very interesting when you said women tend to be looked at as that way, because that's not how I've 
seen myself. And I think actually it was Kelly, you mentioned earlier today before we got on, you were like, ah, I'm actually creating content when you were going through your, your photo shoot. So I think all of us are sort of grappling with like who, I guess, having existential crises when you start to put labels on things. But I do wonder, is it that, you know, content creators, because you're creating something of value whereas influencers are just talking? I'm curious. I don't even know, you know, what, what's yeah. the associated with that, would you say? Yeah, I think that's one piece of it or that influencers are influencing buying decisions and purchasing decisions, but that content creators are actually like, as Kelly would say, culture makers, like creating society, but influencers are impacting decisions, you know? So I think it is like a little bit pejorative. And I think it's just like, it's a brand new conversation that I think is very much related to this conversation. So this is the, you know, as people building businesses and as people who have a presence on social media and who are creating you know, bodies of work, I think it's important how we talk about and identify, you know, in this new economy, um, and what we're willing to let people call us, I think is important. And I think there's an appropriation aspect here that we shouldn't ignore. So when we think about influencers and content creators, what about all of the black and brown TikTok creators Mm -hmm. whom are having their actual intellectual property taken We talk about, you know, just the influential power of Black Americans in terms of trends, in terms of all these other avenues and, you know, things that are starting in communities that have been marginalized. And then somehow once it's noticed by someone in a dominant culture or dominant identity, then it somehow becomes the thing then there's value to it. Then there's something that people have to pay attention to. And this thread here is everywhere. When I think about my neighborhood and the gentrification that's occurring, how come me being a Black person living in this house, somehow an appraiser is going to come in and value it less because of the color of my skin and the color of my neighbor's skin? That as soon as we have other folks who have dominant identities coming in, all of a sudden the same land, the same building materials, like the literal same fit, all of a sudden it's worth more. And then the investments come in. And so when I think about just this very interesting topic, because I had not heard this either, I'm always going to go to, okay, who are the people in power that are deciding who is the creator? And when does something become cool? When does something become worth value? When does corn rolls on some people look trendy Mm -hmm. and on other people look ghetto? (laughs) And so I just wanted to, you know, put that out there because there, you know, again, these threads around money, power, dominant culture, who are the people that are getting, you know, the pass on things versus people who are actually being stolen from. And there's no getting around that one. I didn't even want to take the word influencer back. Like, so now it's become a pejorative. What it means now is like pretty women with an aesthetic on Facebook, you know, saying not much of anything. That's what, like, I'm just going to decode. Like, that's what we're meaning by that, right? But here's the thing. If you actually think about what the word influence means, don't we want to have influence? Influence is power. And when you said like, Jenny, influencers do this, whereas content creators shape culture, influencers are shaping culture for sure. But just within the status quo, let's say. Yeah, within a narrow definition. Right, exactly. But I want to have influence. And so I think it's not necessarily I want to be branded as an influencer. That's not exactly what I... It's sort of what I oppose, really. But I think it's important to take the word back 
influence. That word is important. And the power that comes with the ability to, to influence other people's decisions, every single one of us, whether we have three followers on Instagram or 3 million followers on Instagram has influence. And what I think it's important when we're talking about women, money and power is to map where you have influence. All of us have influence. And this is something that gets me excited. It doesn't matter if you're famous, if you're not famous, there are always people in your life who will be influenced by you. And so you want to figure out how to use your power to influence people for good without being coercive, without being domineering, and to be good influences and to help us steer us towards a future in which we all flourish. And we all have that power. Emily, let's get you in here. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about this, the whole reclaiming of the influencer thing. I run this program called Future Thought Leader, and we call it that on purpose. I mean, of course, what's happening in there is feminists and queer people are trying to get more recognition for their work and use their voices to garner more influence among, you know, everyone from politicians to the people in their lives that need to get a little bit more progressive, et cetera. But folks in there are also very adverse to the word influencer because it seems to have been, as Kelly said, so pushed into a meaningless bubble. Like people's jobs on The Bachelor are influencer more than any other job. And so it just has that ring of the sort of like, you're on The Bachelor, you're on The Bachelorette. And so they don't want to reclaim it. They just want to like spend their time influencing people (laughs) without the label. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. And I think about content creator... Yeah. Anyways, I think that's all I have to say about the influencer content creator thing. The whole gender dynamic is fascinating. I haven't given it much thought. Yeah. Yeah. Amina, any thoughts? I mean, I love what Kelly was saying about taking back the word. I've always leaned more towards the thought leadership piece. And I think it's really important, again, to be thinking about what are the things that we want to lead the thoughts around or what are the spheres that we want to be influencing. But I'd also love to talk about the ceiling question, if we can go back to that. Yeah. So... A couple of years ago in my business, I kept bumping up against this ceiling. There was like this number that I couldn't push past. And I'm a really big fan of hypnotherapy. It served me really well in my healing journey. And so I did hypnotherapy around the ceiling. I was like, what is, what's going on here? Why can't I push past this ceiling? And in my hypnosis session, basically what I uncovered was I remembered this time when I was like nine years old. And for the first time I had learned how much money my dad made. And basically my ceiling was commensurate with how much my dad had made. And so I had this feeling that if I pushed past the ceiling, I was somehow going to, you know, upset the family dynamic, be cast out of the family, et cetera. But there were all these other dynamics that were inside of it too. Like my dad is a brown man. He is Iraqi. He's an immigrant as am I. And there was a ceiling in place for him for how much he could make and what he could do in the world. And me pushing past that felt disloyal in some way. And when I came across this memory, I was like, this is my activism. Me pushing past this ceiling is for him, is for everybody that looks like me, is for everybody from that region. So it was a really powerful... Was it like that? Like as soon as you realized it, you could absolutely go past that number? Was it pretty instant? It was like in a month. Mm-hmm. It was like the knowing and then being activated by it because yeah. of why that ceiling was in place and how important it was for me to transcend it. That within a month, it was like, we're going. Can you give recommendations of where we could all find somebody who's like... <laughs> We're all like... <laughs> no, it's oh, yes, I have got you. Okay. I'm emailing <laughs> you after. Just, let's just not do the thought work or any of the work. Let's just go to hypnotherapy and make millions of dollars. Be yes. Easy. So we don't even have to have any more conversation. I have a more boring, prosaic approach. Um, yeah. But, but I, I like yours very much. <laughs> but I was stuck at the same revenue for three years. Like I was in a revenue plateau. And what 
was going on was when you're in a revenue plateau, it's because the business model that you've created has maxed out. And what you actually need to do, you've broken your business model and it's just going to, it's produced what it's going to produce. And so what you have to do is build a new business model. And then once you've built the new business model, once you figured out what your new way of making money is, what your new, how much you're going to spend, how much you're not going to spend, you have to actually build systems to produce that. So my life is designed to make me go up, you know, three flights of stairs a day because it's a three-story house. So that's what's going to happen. I'm always going to have very strong thighs, right? So my life, my stairs in my house will produce very strong thighs. That's what it's designed to do. So it's the same way. I have to design my business to produce a certain outcome. The previous business model produced a certain outcome. So that's what I actually had to do. So it's very boring, but you actually have to design your business and the systems that support your business to produce a new outcome. And so you actually have to break your business model. And Kelly, when you broke your business model, was that initial model time for money? Yes. Well, there was group stuff in there too, but it was mostly time for money. And I was vastly underpricing everything, Mm. vastly underpricing everything. And so I had to like, take a look at that. And my coach at the time made me go through my calendar and block things out with a black Sharpie and then look at how much time I had left and then price accordingly based on that, right? Instead of making the time fit the revenue, I had to make the revenue fit the time. Right. But I also did scale that. Yeah. And I think that's like part of this for Jenny and I teaching online business and that we really see that as a scalable business for women to make more money and getting out of that trap because of all the things that Kelly experienced with you know nursing a baby and trying to make it all work, that this is an opportunity that we can help and influence more businesses go beyond that hundred thousand, you know, that six figure mark because it's a real psychological one for people. And yeah, there's a lot of factors there. Yes, Femily, top right corner, please go ahead. I had something to say about that, the 88% that never pass 100K. Yeah. What I have found is that women, thanks to the patriarchy and a whole host of other things, feel bad making money with a business when there are people in need. And so, because everyone that I serve is a feminist and a progressive person, anti-racist person, they're always thinking about people in need as they should be. But what they're doing is giving away scholarship spots out of the core business earnings that they need for their business, as opposed to, I'd help them shift into having a what used to be called VIP in the past elitist days, but which is now you can call anything else like a high touch offer, a high cost offer, whatever. Those high cost offers, to be blunt, should be the ones funding your scholarship seats. So therefore your business model is the stuff in the middle, the regular price offers where you're not biting into that with your scholarships. And so it's a really big shift for a lot of women in the patriarchy and a lot of progressives who are used to focusing only on the scholarship needs and not on their own business needs. So putting the needs of other people first, remember that from the patriarchy? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's, I was just gonna say that's straight up, straight up patriarchy thinking right there that had been yeah. pre-programmed. We don't even know we're operating from that belief system when we try to make ourselves available and accessible to everyone. Jenny. Yeah. I just want to critique the nonprofit model here for a second, because I think so many of us like come to into our business with the idea of like massive respect for or association with nonprofits. Me very much as part of my lived experience. And when I started to think about how broken that model was, that was also one of the mental shifts that I could make that made it easier for me to build an actual business. Because when I thought about like how do nonprofits exist, they're largely funded by very oppressive 
organizations like family foundations that got money in ways that none of us would feel okay with. And that's subsidized. Um, those nonprofits are subsidized by money that we would consider in many ways to be quite you know, dirty or something we didn't want to touch. And so when I started to think about it that way, in case this helps anyone, like you can build a business doing like operating very ethically, doing really good healing work in the world. And then your money is clean. And then you can, you know, you can sustain yourself and support yourself. And then you can use your extra capacity, as somebody said, to go and offer scholarship spots or create a ton of really amazing free content or do charity work, whatever it is that you want to do. But you're operating from a place of sustenance yourself. There's something I say about this. We are conditioned, as Jenny said, and as Femily has pointed out, to give away everything all the time because our time is not supposed to belong to us, right? We are supposed to always be in service to the higher status people above us. So this is a massive thing to take that back. So the thing I say about this is if the feminist running the business isn't flourishing, then it's not a feminist business. So you can have all the feminist business practices, but if you are not personally flourishing and you're exploiting yourself, then it is still a model of extraction. So you actually do need to flourish in order to be creating a new world business. And at the same time, I'm not saying go make an empire and buy an island and dam up all the resources, right? Like that's not what I'm saying. But I also want to point something out and family can like, we can talk about this, but family and I had courses launching at the same time, both about feminist social media. And we could have got into a place of we're competing, we're in scarcity. What we did instead was got together and collaborated. And I asked Femily, can I give your course away as the bonus in my course? And I paid Femily the full price for all of those giveaways that I did. So I said like the first 25 people who signed up for my course, which was $1,000, we're going to get Femily's course for free as a bonus. So more people in fact signed up and then I got to send Femily a nice check for $8,000, right? And so we actually made more by collaborating. And so I just want to say like, just because you're in the same sector or it even seems like you're doing the same thing, there's this model out there about scarcity. And we just have to like turn it upside down. Every time you feel like you're in competition, try to collaborate instead and try to maximize. You're traveling the same way. Two of you will do better than one. Always. We can leverage each other's audiences. We can support each other. Emily like shouted me out today. And you know, like, so collaboration is actually, so I'm talking about let's not empire build, let's collaborate and share resources. We will all do better. A thousand percent. And I took your model. I was so moved by your model that I did that with two feminist business owners (laughs) (laughs) for giveaways for future thought leader. Yes. It was amazing. And they were like, this is amazing. And it's just spinning. And now they're trying to figure out how to do it in their businesses. Right. And we're all making more because of that. We have more audience. We have more sales. We're supporting each other and we're keeping those resources in flow. And I think it's important here to to recognize that the patriarchy has taught women about scarcity. They teach men typically about abundance. They're taught about wealth building, risk, you know, investing. And women are taught, as Jenny and I always say, to clip coupons and do more with less and just like, like hold on. And if you look at the magazines and the articles that are written in the men versus women magazines, it's a totally different message. So part of this like scarcity, hold on to what you have is completely programmed again by patriarchy. 
Yes. And can I say one thing on that? So I was working on a corporate offer and initially the idea was to be educating white men on how to support diverse leaders. And basically when I was socializing this offer, a lot of women were talking about how, well, we need to also bring women on the journey too, because there's so much women on women crime, especially in corporate America, because of the scarcity, the idea that there's one spot and we have to fight for it at the top and that there's not enough space for all of us. And it is programmed into us and it's everywhere. Let me get to Keisha's question in here. To Keisha saying, what about instances where a feminist business owner is thriving, but has a female team that is overtaxed in their time and energy while under earning? Kelly Deals, I feel like you have oh something gosh. to say about I've that. Worked, <laughs> I have worked in organizations like this. This is the thing I critique. That's not a feminist business. That is someone mm-hmm. who is espousing feminist principles, making feminist noises, but not actually building feminist practices into our business. So before we get to the place where we're like, you know, wrapping things up in pink bows and presenting it out as a feminist business, we really need to look at our own business practices and get those right. And if your team is overworking and is exhausted and nobody can date because they have to work 16 hours a day, then that is not a feminist business. I have worked at that organization, right? And you do that because you love and adore the mission, but that's not feminist practice. So we need to like take a step back and look at our feminist practices. And we need to speak honestly about those experiences. That doesn't mean that the work of the organization is now completely invalid, but what needs to happen is a revolution behind the scenes. Right. And so what I look at is we all have the opportunity, entrepreneurs especially have this opportunity to make the decisions about our business practices. We get to define our payment plans to create financial justice instead of like financial injustice. We get to look at our hiring practices and bake inclusion into them. We get to look at our group practices and make sure that we're creating supportive environments for the people with the most intersecting marginalized identities. You know, like we get to do that week and nobody can tell us no because we own these businesses. So that's where we start. And then we go and market using feminist language. But we don't start marketing with feminist language if we haven't baked the principles into our business. And quite frankly, bake the principles into how you live your life, not mm-hmm. just in your business, but in how you treat people. You know, as a business owner who also still has a corporate job, working at a level in my corporate job where I am often the only one, gender and racial, and where I work in a highly dominant male field, logistics. I mean, talk about Bob the Builder and a whole bunch of forklifts and trucks everywhere. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, corporate and when I think about entrepreneurial and where there are some commonalities in terms of just what's that saying? We're all in the water, so we're all wet. Mm-hmm. I think at least as an entrepreneur where you have some autonomy and what you decide to do, you also got to look at yourself and do that self-reflection and do that unlearning. And, you know, when we think about 2020 and the great awakening that, you know, some folks had, you know, there's a lot that's still very performative. And so I believe, especially as women who may have some privilege, it's important to look at that. And not just focus on the practices in the business, but how are you treating people in your life? Because when you're treating people in your life in a way that has respect, that treats people with dignity, that is going to show up in how you show up in your business too. 
Yeah, 100%. Thank you, Naomi. I'm just going to go to Nikki. I know Emily answered, but I wouldn't mind a few of the other panelists answering. So what if you try to collaborate with other women business owners and they decline? I've been so resigned about this. Two different women business owners in the past few months, I don't understand. Anyone? Amina, maybe do you want to take that about... Sounds like a little coaching situation there. So... You know, no is something to celebrate as well. I celebrate the yeses and I celebrate the noes. And I think it's really important to not get hooked into the no and make it mean something about ourselves or make it mean something about them. We can say thank you next and move on to people that really do want to collaborate with us. I think it's, I've deeply met codependency in my business. And I think that's part of the conversation there too, of not hanging on to everything to be a yes, because there are people that really do want to work with you. And the sooner you move past the no's, the closer you can get to those people. I think there's a pragmatic piece here too, and there isn't much context behind the question, but I think it was Kelly that talked about building feminist ecosystems. And so when you are building your network and you're looking beyond just the people that you know and expanding who you're in relationship with, that may create more opportunities for a yes versus the quote unquote cold call where you may be asking someone to collaborate. As a podcaster, you know, there are some podcasts that have millions and millions and millions of downloads a week (laughs) and some podcasts do not. And so, you know, sometimes there is this reality of what's the value exchange and understanding, you know, what is it that the person you want to collaborate with, what are they looking for? Some folks are looking for something that depending on where you are in your business, you don't quite have it yet. And that's where I'm going to, you know, I agree. Absolutely. Like sometimes the no is just a not right now, but I do think that depending on circumstances and situations, you can get to yes. And there are different strategies I think that can be used to create opportunities for more yeses. And get more information right off of that, right? Understanding the value that you bring ask why, you know, if you don't mind, just, you know, if that person hasn't told you why just quickly, like, you know, I'd love to learn more. And also what are your goals? Could I come back at another time? If, you know, now understanding what value you're looking for and then see if there's patterns, right? If you're getting consistent no's and then you sort of collect more information around it. And this kind of goes, I think, piggybacking off well from what Naomi just said, is the pattern here that you're reaching out to a certain kind of person or group that is not quite right or whatever. But the only way you're going to know that is if you have more information. So don't be afraid to ask to ask why. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And if you guys, if you don't mind putting the questions in the Q&A, it's just a little easier to track and we can tell which ones we've addressed and which ones we've answered. So any other questions from the people in the audience, the attendees, and where else do you guys want to go? We've totally like thrown our five questions out of the window. Can I add something that I talk yeah. about a lot? And I- uh, um, there's power... And I think of power as two dynamics. You have external power that can come from positional power. It can come from power from having privilege. It can come from power of being in community, of being resourced in a lot of different ways. It can come from power of your education, of being a you know Harvard legacy. Like there are all the things that are external. And when they're external, that also means it can be taken away from you. It doesn't mean that it's not important, but what can't be taken away from you is your internal power. And I talk about cultivating internal power. And one of the ways you do that is by building your self-trust and practicing self-advocacy. And so everyone on this panel here and Claire, you reminded me of that piece when you're like, ask the question, ask why. You know, sometimes we're fearful 
to get information. Sometimes we, you know, may think that someone's going to think we're being too direct. Someone isn't, you know, it's not worth having the quote unquote hard conversation. But when you have self-trust and I talk about build having self-trust as a form of self-care, because if you aren't empowered to ask the questions to get the information that you need, no one necessarily is going to do that for you. If you aren't in a place where you can at least speak on what is important to you. And here's the thing. Sometimes we're not in that position. Claire talked about sometimes there are people who are not in a position to have negotiating power because you can't afford to lose that income. You can't afford to lose that job security. But here's the thing. When you have that self-trust, you know, you know what? I am in a place right now where I need a year to work on how I can build those options and how I can build other opportunities so that I don't feel like I'm pigeonholed and cornered. And as someone who has over 20 years in corporate, one of my superpowers that has gotten me to where I am is that I spend my privilege in that way at work because I can walk away. And I use my corporate money to fund my business. And Kelly and I talk about this a lot in terms of, you know, it's okay if you are in the phase of your business where it may not be that you can just go all in. And if you really believe in yourself, then you're going to quit that job. And, you know, some of the coaches and some of the messaging, there's like low key shade in terms of you're not a real entrepreneur unless you're all in. And that's not the case either. So I, I know I've like gone a lot of different ways here, but I thought it was important to talk about that internal power. And we are all in positions where they're different. The privilege looks different, but... We all can keep cultivating that internal power, practicing advocating for yourself and advocacy for yourself. The feeling of that is when you've said what you needed to say, when you feel like you've gotten the information that you need to have to make a smart decision for yourself, or if you're in a position where maybe it's not safe to advocate outwardly, having that self-honesty and say, you know what, I'm going to protect myself. Safety is important because without safety, how can we be in this world and make some of the decisions that we want to make? So this money that we talk about in terms of power, in terms of freedom, it also provides safety. And so being okay with the phase of life that you're in and the season of life that you're in and always being willing to be honest with yourself. And sometimes it takes help and that's okay. Help is not a dirty word. Power is not a dirty word. Sometimes help is talking to a therapist. Sometimes help is talking to a friend or listening to a podcast or reading the book or journaling. You know, there are so many things out here that can help with mindset, but some things can't be solved by mindset. Some things are going to take resources that are available and just taking some time to be okay with that. One other thing that I was going to just mention is I think a fear that many of us have in asking questions is we're worried about the answer that it would be a rejection of us, right? So if I ask for more and I'm told no, we think, well, what does that say about me? And this is a theme we sort of touched on earlier, but looking at our work and our, you know, the money we make as an indictment on who we are and how much we're worth, right? So like network, you know, your net worth does not equal your 
I'm missing. You all know that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Your self-worth does not equal your net worth, but that's really tough for a lot of us, especially if you love what you do, right? Like you are your work sometimes ish, but then the problem is if you ask for more and you are told no, if you haven't built that solid foundation of true and deep belief in yourself, then you will always, you know, you'll just go this way and that way based on how somebody else treats you again, really hard life you know, ongoing work that you have to do, but just know that there are so many factors out of your control that it's best to focus on the things that you do have agency over, right? So when I ask for more, you know, there's reasons they might say no that have nothing to do with me. So what I'm going to focus on is being proud that I asked, or what can I learn about this experience? How can I take this information and make it work for me, right? So I always say, you know, there's a lot of things within that, but just acknowledge what you cannot control and let that go and really people are more focused on themselves than you. So even if what they say feels like a rejection of you personally, it usually really isn't. It says more about them and the circumstances that they're dealing with. Jenny? Yeah, I had a question for the panelists that I wanted to ask. So all of you are doing movement building work. And I'm curious, like, why do that work through a business? Like, why did you choose a business as the vehicle to do that work? Or did that work find you after you started your business? Does anyone want to share their story about that or how they think of that? Yeah, Claire, I'm really curious. Yeah, yeah. So I, long story short, I'd had a a really sexist experience happen to me in 2013, 2014 that just started the awakening, which now I've come to realize is actually a term, a feminist term, where I realized, wow, I had thought that workplaces were a meritocracy. And also what a privilege to believe that. And, you know, started to research the wage gap, didn't really know what that was. In my defense, 2014, we weren't really talking about this stuff certainly as much as we are now. And I'm uncovering these statistics that just keep getting worse and worse around women and work and money. Get overwhelmed. I get depressed because the thinking is, well, as an individual, what can I possibly do? to combat something that big. And the aha moment, and then this is what led to the business part, the aha moment was when a friend of mine came to me and said, I just discovered that I am charging so much less than my male counterparts. She was a freelance art director. And for her, it was two things. It was, I don't know what to charge. Okay. So lack of information. And number two, did she believe she was worthy of asking for more, right? The psychological component. Now I'm going to do the really, really short story, but it was starting to host events that I realized a way that you could begin to sort of close the wage gap or all of these gaps is let me make sure that I am at least advocating for myself. The next step is how can I advocate for the women at my workplace? And then it's what are policies and organizations that work to support those policies that can help women in the workplace. And I'm not going to be able to do this if I don't make money. And plus, that's not really living my mission. Although ironically, I actually do struggle with charging for more. I'm very much in the, but I want to be inclusive. So then I get paid the least. So it's always still a conversation of how you grow as a business while also still making it affordable for everybody. But you know, the point was, was it just, this is, I want to be wealthy. How about that? Can you do well and do good? I'd like to believe so. And the only way to preach it is to live it. You just need hypnotherapy. It solves everything. Really? Seriously? I am going to follow up about that. I know. (laughs) Family, what order did it happen for you? So mine is about, so I help tech companies not be so sexist and racist. And so sometimes I do have days when it's going really badly and I'm just talking to boneheads who won't move forward. I'm like, why am I even helping companies? Like they're just gonna, like tech is evil. Like I go back and forth, right? Mostly I'm like, 
Tech is the place where money is happening. The first so many employees who work in the companies, they become so rich and it's usually just white dudes. And fuck that. I want it to be women, people of all colors, queer people, et cetera. So that's why I'm trying to shoehorn all different kinds of people into tech and make tech a place where, you know, underrepresented people can like shine for a few years and then get rich so that they can then have that opportunity and power and freedom because it's the vehicle. Do I think... Businesses are the best structure for a society. That's a different conversation. But do I think they are the structure for this society in this moment? Yes. And I think it's mostly tech. And I also live in Silicon Valley. So that's where we are. So it was the, I think it was the business first. Yeah. Amina, do you want to weigh in? I would love to. So I started my career in corporate America and I worked at Cartier and I got to work on their Women's Initiative Awards, which is this contest that provides funding for women-run businesses. And getting to work on that project just like blew everything open for me. And I was like, okay, I want to do this full time. So I co-founded a marketing agency where I was working with emerging female entrepreneurs. But while I was doing that, I was diagnosed with two chronic illnesses. And so... First, I was there for the women. I was like, I want to grow these businesses because they don't have opportunities in the way that others do. And then I got these two diagnoses and I couldn't run the business the way that I was running the business. So I went back to corporate America because insurance and better insurance. But what I realized then and there was that in that structure, in that sort of capitalistic machine, we kind of ask people to like instrumentalize our bodies to like really squeeze them dry of the resources that they have. And it wasn't possible for me with chronic illness. So then I came back to entrepreneurship and I was like, okay, I want to do things differently. And there's more latitude for me to do it here. There's more flexibility for me to do it here. And then I can direct those funds in service of people that have been impacted in the same way that I have. Kelly? I think that I snapped. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. I- Like repeatedly, I probably had several snapping moments, but I had my own business for several years and I felt like I was not getting the traction that I wanted. And I was getting so sick of having to perform like a version of myself, like the smiley, happy version of myself. And I I just couldn't sustain it. And so what would happen was I'd do all these marketing initiatives. I'd be visible on social media. I'd be publishing my blog posts and sending my newsletters and performing the character for three months. And then I'd be utterly exhausted because to sustain a character takes a lot of energy. And I felt like you had to show up in a sheath dress and like perfectly waved hair and a smile. And I just honestly couldn't do it. And I felt like I was having to swallow my feminist principles and do business the way I was learning how to do it in all these marketing training programs that were hosted by women entrepreneurs. And I was having to swallow my own feminist ethics to implement those marketing systems. So I could never really get traction because I couldn't do it wholeheartedly, nor could I sustain the character. And so I just snapped and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I went back to the corporate world and I worked there and I was so happy. I was working in a B2B environment. I was selling tech. All I had to do was reduce risk for the buyers of these million dollar packages. I did not have to perform a character. Like it was such a relief. And then I had baby number five. And I couldn't sustain the corporate world anymore because I had five daycares and I had to be home at a certain time where I'm paying $10 a minute and I just wasn't going to advance in my career. So I was like at a crossroads where I was going to go nowhere in the corporate world. So I was like, okay, I have to restart my business. So I restarted my business, but I'd been away for about maybe two, three years. And I came back and I suddenly saw the women's entrepreneurship space totally differently. And I could, it like I'd snapped before, but now I couldn't stomach it. And now I saw this thing called the female lifestyle empowerment brand that I, that's what I call it 
it anyways. And I was like, the character. And not only is it just the character that you have to perform, it's white supremacy, it's ableism, it's homophobia, it's all, it's heteronormativity, it's all of these things. We're having to perform privilege in order to show people that we are bosses. And that's why people buy from us. They're buying our privilege instead of our actual expertise. And I just, I couldn't stomach it. And I started writing about it. And I started writing about it knowing that I was blowing up my business. I started writing about it. I'm like, oh, everybody's going to hate me. And I put my first piece out about it, about telling the truth about what are we actually selling when we're showing up like this. And it got like 20,000 views in a week. And I was getting trashed in all these famous Facebook groups. And in fact, my business did better than ever before. So for me, it was just like, I literally couldn't swallow my principles anymore and not tell the truth, nor could I play by those rules anymore. Because like I said, those rules aren't going to get us nowhere. And I was just like, let me just tell the truth. And I honestly thought that my business was going to die. And indeed, I lost half my list in the space of two weeks, half my list that I had spent five years building, half of it was gone in the space of two weeks. And everyone else who joined thereafter took me over that seven figures in less than like eight months, nine months. So what I learned about that is telling the truth and relying on your actual beliefs and acting in align with them is your best marketing fuel. And so you can be movement oriented mission, not mission. That's a terrible word, colonial word, but like you can be vision oriented and principled and that can be the fuel. And you can be contributing to a future in which you all flourish while also flourishing right now yourself, not just in some hypothetical future. And that's the sweet spot I want us all to be in. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. And it's so interesting. So for all of you who are worried about changing memberships, we were talking earlier about memberships and like combining things and like fear of loss. Like look at what, just remember Kelly's story because that is fabulous. Let's hear from you, Naomi. So mine is a little bit different. I have over 20 years in corporate and I was given a formula for success because as parents who grew up as baby boomers under Jim Crow, as black Americans, it was go to college, get good grades, get a good job, buy a house, take vacations, pay your bills, you'll have a happy life. And what was unsaid, but expected was also get married and have kids. And so I followed that quote unquote formula for success. And yet in my early thirties, I found myself miserable and I'll never forget this. I was in the parking lot at my job. And I called my husband and I was just crying and I left the house fine and I'm calling him crying 45 minutes later. And I was like, I don't like my life. I have no friends. I have no one to talk to. I can't be myself. There's too much. Like it was just a complete and utter fracturing of this formula that I was told would work. And so for me, it started with getting back to Like, what do I fucking like to do? Like, I did not. I was just good at studying and passing tests. Like, I could not tell you what I necessarily liked. And so it was a few years of that rediscovery. And through that rediscovery, learning, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of conditioning that I'm living and I'm making decisions within. And so as I worked on myself, my number one goal, my whole adult life was lose weight. And so working on myself was working to lose weight for years and years and years. And so as I started to identify and recognize all these villains and minions that were hijacking, you know, what I thought of myself and what I could do, I would say I'm very fortunate in that through self-development, 
with the background in finance, with my degree in finance, and you know, always being attracted to money and money management and helping people who come from backgrounds where they're not used to having people talk to them about investing. Their parents, maybe they were the first generation or second generation to go to college. And so kind of discovering that and then being very fortunate to come into communities with people like here on this panel where all the BS, like some of the online business stuff coming from corporate, I was like, what? what is this marketing? Like some of the things that was happening, it was just odd. And so through that self-discovery and recognizing that I wanted to have a place where I could be myself and I was beholden to no one, that's when I started my podcast because I needed something that was mine. Now I'm also strategic. So I was like, but if I'm going to do this, it needs to be trademarked. I need to know what I'm talking about, who I'm talking to, what I believe, how I want to help people. And then it was like this very organic progression in terms of, okay, you know, what do I love to do? What do I love to talk about? And then also, how can I continue to get the message out there, which is for me, the power of everyday people. You don't have to have necessarily a whole bunch of money, a big fancy job title, you know, know all these celebrities, have all these followers. Like we were talking about earlier, who you are inherently is a value. And there are people in your life who you are, they're dream person. And so recognizing you have that power today as just an everyday person and getting that message out there, that's when kind of things came together. And I was able to articulate what was within me, which is, hey, I'm a Black American feminist. I talk about women having more money, more power, and effing up all the oppression getting in their way. And how can I help you do that in your personal finances? And how do we start to cut out all the BS? And also, it's okay if you have debt. You know, debt shaming culture is real, but debt is a tool. Debt is just a financial tool. And it's part of the money cycle. So really helping, especially people who don't come from wealth and don't come from privilege, helping them to not have shame around their money, not have shame around their decisions, and to recognize that they can use what they have today to create plans to get to where they want to be. And so that's how I came into my business and where I'm at. And again, very fortunate not to have to unlearn some of the online business practices that are predatory and just gross. I think I'm very lucky to be starting when I feel like Kelly says, you know, flourishing myself and staying true to what I believe and then being okay with having my corporate job, create the spaciousness and the stability so that I can build my business in a way that allows me to have my life and, you know, do things that are important for me and show up in ways that I hope are helping people who listen to me, follow to me, follow me. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love that we also ended with all the stories at the end. So that's quite fitting. So maybe we'll just, it's 7.05. We've got a few minutes over. So maybe just to wrap this up, do each of you just want to say a few last words, parting words, advice, what you got, Claire? Oh no, now I'm first. Oh gosh. Yeah. On purpose. I would just say, you know, try to be in the present as much as possible. It's a bit woo woo, I guess to say, but like we're always planning for the future or sort of berating ourselves for the past or trying to learn from the past. And really the only thing you can do right now is just, ah, what's the smell? What do I see? What do I taste? Like learn a practice where you can just ground yourself because everything else will be there waiting for you. But this is, I mean, back to like, you have agency, you just need to make sure that you fully step into it. Awesome. Thank you. Amina? 
So connecting to what Kelly was saying before about, you know, are we really running a feminist business if we're not taking care of the feminists running the business, which I love so much. My parting words are that self-sacrifice is not a contribution and that if we are not taking care of ourselves and we take ourselves out because we are self-sacrificing and our mission fails to exist, have we had the mark that we came here to have? And the answer is a resounding no. So we need t-shirts with all of this, all of it, all of it on it. Family. Talk to other people who are not straight white bros about money, about your money, about your savings, about your debt, all of it. Because something that keeps us from asking for more money or knowing we should be investing or doing anything right with money or having any shame swishing away from us is that we don't talk about it. There's a huge taboo about it. Yeah, absolutely. Naomi. I would say just cultivate a practice of self-trust and Mm self-advocacy. And that will flow into all aspects of your life, including how you make decisions with your earning, your spending, your saving, your investing, and paying money back. So practice that and, you know, see how you progress. I love it. Kelly, last word to you. I trust you with money. Yes. I trust you with money. Yes. Yes. Let's cultivate it. Let's keep it flowing. Let's circulate it. Let's share it but I trust you with money and power. So go get it. So I'm going to use that as a segue. Tomorrow morning, we are talking about pricing in the patriarchy. That is one of my points to like work into, I trust myself with money. And so to get your invite, just apply to Inner Circle, uh, put the link in the chat there, thriveonlineconference.com slash apply. So that wraps it up. Jenny, do you want to have some last words as well? I just want to thank all of our panelists and all of our guests today for such an incredible time and incredible experience. And I hope that you just get out your journal and, you know, get pour a cup of tea before you go to bed and just try to remember, you know, this conversation because you'll want to come back to it later. I know from the experience last time that I really, I valued that experience. So thank you all for joining us. It means a lot to Sandy and I both that you are all here today. Next year. Can we book again next year, one year? Yes. All right. Yeah. And an open invitation to all of our panelists to please come back on our podcast. With yeah, I think we need to round two, round two on the podcast. So, okay, my friends, thank you all. Really, truly, it was amazing. And it's such an honor to spend this hour with you. So thank you to all the attendees for joining us throughout the sessions, that all the replays are there if you need them. And with that, we'll wrap it up. And a few of you will see you tomorrow morning. And otherwise, we'll chat with you on social and be out there on the internet. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Good night. Hey, before you go, if you enjoy listening to our podcast and you know that your future involves teaching or coaching online, check out our Inner Circle experience. It's where we take these concepts, women in business, money, online business strategy, mindset, feminism, and help our clients take their expertise and transition it to an online offering. It's a one-year program with high-touch strategy and mindset coaching, online business courses, and the best community on the internet. To apply, head over to theinnercircle.works, fill out our short two-minute application, and if we believe you're a great fit, you'll receive access to a private advanced training on creating a profitable online business and all the program details. Go to theinnercircle.works to learn more.